Please open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 31, verses 1 through 11. That will be the sermon text for today, Exodus 31, 1. The New Testament reading will come from 1 Peter 2. We will look at verses 1 through 12. Exodus 31, 1 Peter 2. Hear now the reading of God's most holy word. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood, to work in every craft. And behold, I have appointed with him Aholiab, the son of Ahizamach, of the tribe of Dan. And I have given to all able men ability, that they may make all that I have commanded you, the tent of meeting, and the ark of the testimony, and the mercy seat that is on it, and all of the furnishings of the tent, the table and its utensils, and the pure lampstand with all its utensils, and the altar of incense, and the altar of burnt offering with all of its utensils, and the basin and its stand, and the finely worked garments, the holy garments for Aaron the priest, and the garments of his sons for their service as priests, and the anointing oil and the fragrant incense for the holy place. According to all that I have commanded you, they shall do. Let us go now to 1 Peter 2 and look at verses 1 through 12. First Peter 2, verse 1. Peter the Apostle writes to Christians living under the New Covenant, saying, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to Him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word, as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak Against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So far, the reading of God's most holy word. May he add his blessing to the preaching of it this morning. I trust that you can see why I have set Exodus 31 
alongside 1 Peter 2. The two passages have this in common. They both speak up, they, they both speak of the building up of God's tabernacle or temple. Did you catch that as I read? Uh, these two passages, Exodus 31 and 1 Peter 2, both speak of the building up of God's tabernacle or temple. In Exodus 31, we learn that the Lord commanded the Old Covenant tabernacle to be built of the precious materials and according to the heavenly design that was shown to Moses on the mountain and that its construction fall under the oversight of a man named Bezalel of the tribe of Judah, whom the Lord had anointed with his spirit for the skillful accomplishment of this task. Isn't that marvelous to consider? You have Moses and you have the priests and you have the tabernacle itself that is to be built. But there was a man in Israel and then an assistant was given to him who was anointed to do things with his hands, uh, to skillfully work in precious metals and in carvings and in all the rest. He was to oversee uh, the work of building the tabernacle. And 1 Peter 2 also speaks of the building of God's tabernacle or temple. The temple of which 1 Peter 2 speaks is not the tabernacle or temple of the Old Covenant, but it is the New Covenant temple of God. It is not a temple made with earthly materials, but of people made holy by the blood of the Lamb. They are in that passage called living stones. Christ Himself is called a living stone there, and He is the cornerstone of this temple. He is the cornerstone of the foundation of it. But this temple under the new covenant is not visible. It is spiritual. It is made up of people who have been washed by the blood of the Lamb, who have faith in Jesus the Messiah. And I ask you, who has been anointed with the Spirit and commissioned to build this spiritual new covenant temple? Who is it who has been commissioned to build this spiritual new covenant temple. It is not Bezalel of the tribe of Judah, but Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, who is building this temple even to this present day. I do believe that these two things ought to be compared. For clearly this theme of temple or tabernacle building is one that is developed throughout the story of the Bible. I want you to be patient with me yet again. As I present to you a very long introduction to a sermon that will not be long in total. But in the introduction, I do want to convince you that this theme of temple or tabernacle building is one that ties the whole story of Scripture together. There are many such themes. For example, you have heard me speak of the theme of the kingdom of God and its development using the terms offered, promised, prefigured, inaugurated, and consummated. I sometimes tell my wife about what the sermon is going to be on Sunday, and I said, you might hear the words offered, promised, prefigured, inaugurated, and consummated again in this sermon. And then I began to tell her uh, where we were going to go with things. Um, you have heard these terms before. If you've been at Emmaus for any length of time, these terms will be familiar to you. And I think that the same terms may be used to describe the development of the theme of temple or tabernacle in the Holy Scriptures. What is the Bible about? What would you say if someone asked you that question? What is the Bible about? It's such a big book with so many little books in it, with so many various themes. Um, if someone were to come to you and say, but, but just 
Synthesize it for me. Tell me what the Bible is about. What would you say? Perhaps you would say this. Well, it is the story of creation, man's fall into sin, redemption in Christ Jesus, and the consummation of all things at the end of time when Christ returns to make all things new. Creation, fall, redemption, consummation. That, that, that's a very good way to summarize the story of Holy Scripture. To summarize the message of Scripture in another way, we might say it is the story of the establishment of God's kingdom. His kingdom was offered to Adam but forfeited by God's grace. Its full establishment was promised to Adam. Adam would not usher in the eternal kingdom of God. Instead, one of his descendants would, the seed of the woman who would crush the serpent's head. Now please hear me. This kingdom, the kingdom of God, was prefigured on earth through the old covenant nation of Israel. I've been trying to convince you of this in our study of the book of Exodus. This kingdom of God that was offered to Adam and promised to him in that curse of the serpent was then prefigured in old covenant Israel. Israel was a holy people brought into a holy land to worship and serve the holy God as king. So then the kingdom was offered, promised, and then prefigured. And when I say that the kingdom was prefigured in Old Covenant Israel, I mean that it was present on earth. The kingdom of God was present on earth, but only in a prototypical way. God's kingdom was present, but not with full power. It was present, but only as a picture, a prototype, and promise of something greater yet to come. This is essential to know if we are to understand the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. And this is why John the Baptist came preaching, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In other words, it's here now. In other words, John prepared the way for the Messiah, the anointed son of Adam, Abraham, and God, who would crush the serpent's head. And John did also announce the soon arrival of the kingdom of God on earth. Some might wonder, but wasn't the kingdom of God on earth already? The answer, well, yes, in a certain way. Generally, God has always been sovereign over all things, but that's really not what we're talking about here. God's kingdom was present in the form of a promise from Adam's day to Moses, and it was present in the form of promise and picture or promise and prototype in Old Covenant Israel from Moses' day to the time of Christ. But the kingdom of God came in power through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon all who believe from every tongue, tribe, and nation. So when did God's kingdom come in power? Answer, when the Messiah came to accomplish the redemption of God's elect, to establish the new covenant in His blood, to ascend to the Father's right hand with all authority in heaven and on earth being given to Him. Do you hear the language of kingdom there? He ascended to heaven and He sat down upon His throne. All authority in heaven and on earth was given to Jesus after He accomplished His work of redemption and ascended to the right hand of the Father. The kingdom of God was inaugurated when Christ Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, accomplished the work that was given to Him by the Father in the covenant of redemption. And having finished His work, having bound the evil one, having ascended to the Father, He sat down upon His throne and sent forth the Holy Spirit, so that with all authority in heaven and earth being given to Him, His disciples might go with confidence and make disciples of all nations, baptizing and teaching them to observe all that Christ has commanded. I'm wanting you to see that the kingdom of God is present on earth now, not in a prototypical way only, but in power. 
For all who have Jesus as Lord and King are citizens of this kingdom now. This kingdom, it expands as the gospel of the kingdom goes forth. This kingdom expands as the Holy Spirit works to move men and women, boys and girls, to turn from their sins, to bow the knee and to confess with their mouths and believe in their hearts that Jesus is Lord. This kingdom is manifest on earth wherever God's people assemble before God's table, Lord's Day after Lord's Day. This is the kingdom of God manifest even here before us. What do we await then? What do we await except the consummation of this kingdom? And when will that happen? It will happen when Christ returns. When Christ returns, He will judge all who are not united to Him by faith, and He will usher His people, those washed in His blood through faith in Him, into the new heavens and earth, which He has earned. According to Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 24, At that time Christ will deliver the kingdom of God to the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For He must reign, Paul says, until He has put all His enemies under His feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under His feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that He is accepted who put all things in subjection under Him. What Paul is saying there is that Christ, having finished His work and having ascended to the right hand of the Father and having sat down, has everything put under subjection to Him in this kingdom of His that has come now in power, with one exception, that is to say, God the Father. But at the end of time, when Christ returns to bring in the kingdom consummate, the kingdom will be delivered to God the Father. After all, all things are to the glory of God, even the work that Christ has done. So what does all of this talk about the kingdom of God being offered, promised, prefigured, inaugurated, and one day consummated have to do with the tabernacle and later temple of Old Covenant Israel? Well, I review all of that with you this morning because I want you to see that the same terms, the same concepts we have applied to the theme of kingdom can also be applied to the theme of temple or tabernacle. I think you can see that the Holy Scriptures tell the story of the establishment of God's eternal kingdom through Christ Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords. You've heard this before from me. But I hope that you can also see that the Holy Scriptures tell the story of the establishment of God's eternal temple or tabernacle through Christ Jesus. He is the son of David who was set apart to build a house for God wherein all of God's redeemed will commune with Him. Not a house of wood or stone, but a renewed creation, a new heavens and earth in which righteousness dwells. Christ is the one who has accomplished that. He is ultimately this son of David who has built a house for God. And it is not a house built of wood and stone. It is the new creation, the new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. The story of Scripture tells this story. The story of the establishment of God's eternal and worldwide temple of God. After all, what is a temple or tabernacle, biblically speaking? Is it not a holy place? We're in a holy people. 
are invited to commune with, worship, and serve the Holy One, God Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth. Indeed, that is what a temple is. It is a special place set apart by God wherein man is invited to approach Him, to commune with Him, to relate to Him, to worship and serve Him. That is what a temple is. And you have heard me say that Eden was a temple. And it was. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and all that is within. But afterward, after that initial act of creation, what did the Lord do? He planted a garden in Eden, in the east. And there He put the man whom He had formed. That is Genesis 2.8. There Adam and Eve enjoyed sweet communion with God. I want to place emphasis upon this word communion. Adam and Eve enjoyed sweet communion with God. Their relationship was right with Him. They related to God. They enjoyed His presence. They worshipped and served Him there in that garden paradise. It was a temple. That's what it was. Not made of wood and stone, not made of precious metals, but the, the creation itself contained a temple. There was a garden there. And what was Adam to do with that garden? He was to keep it. That's temple language, by the way. That's what the priests in the Old Covenant were to do with the temple and the tabernacle before it. They were to keep it pure so that no unclean thing would enter into it. That's what Adam was called to do originally. He was to keep the garden. No unclean thing was to enter it. He failed, did he not? The serpent slithered right in and began to speak his lies. He was to keep it. He was to expand it to the furthest reaches of the earth. Do you get the image here? This garden temple was a, uh, was a little temple at first. But Adam and Eve were to expand its borders until it filled the earth and they were to fill that temple with their descendants, with their posterity. This garden was, was a temple wherein Adam and Eve were to enjoy sweet communion with God and so too were their descendants. That was God's command. This temple was offered to Adam. God's temple was offered to Adam. So there is that word offered. It was offered to Adam and Eve and their posterity, but it was forfeited. After this, I am saying that the temple of God, the, the worldwide and eternal temple of God, was then promised to Adam. And when I say that the temple was promised to Adam after his fall into sin, I am obviously referring to the first promise of the gospel that was announced to him through the curse that was pronounced upon the serpent, as recorded in Genesis 3.15. The word tabernacle or temple is not found there, but it is strongly implied that the seed of the woman, the one who would one day crush the serpent's head, would undo, would undo the damage that the serpent had caused through his tempting of the man and the woman. If the original thing offered to Adam was the worldwide temple of God, then it is implied that this Savior, this seed of the woman who would one day come, this champion who would defeat the evil one, would undo his works, would obtain the thing that Adam failed to obtain, the rest of the Scriptures, Prove this story to be true. You could see it there in Genesis chapter 3. But the rest of the scriptures prove this theory to be true. What would this Savior do? What would this seed of the woman accomplish? Well, this seed of the woman, the Messiah, would crush the serpent's head, would undo his works, and would bring in that thing that was originally offered to Adam, but forfeited. So the worldwide, eternal temple of God was offered to Adam but lost. God, by His grace, did promise to recover what was lost through the one who would arise from the woman, that is to say, through the Messiah, 
So then this promise concerning an eternal kingdom or an eternal temple, the new heavens and earth in which righteousness dwells, was present in the world from Adam's day onward. But in the days of Moses, in the days of Moses, through Israel, and in the covenant that God transacted with them, this promise, this, this promise that had been present in the world from man's fall into sin all the way to the days of Moses, that's a long time, this promise was made visible and tangible. Do you see that this was added in the days of Moses? This promise, it was still present in the days of Moses, of course, but something was added Something was added to this promise of the gospel, this promise of the gospel in the days of Moses and through Israel, and under the terms of the Old Covenant, was made visible, it was made tangible. From Adam to Moses, God's people who trusted in the promises of God, people like Abraham, people like Melchizedek, and all whom Melchizedek served as a priest, They worshipped at simple altars. They believed in these promises. They worshipped at simple altars. But in the days of Moses, the descendants of Abraham were commanded to construct a tabernacle. Later in the days of King Solomon, this portable tabernacle would be made into a permanent temple in Jerusalem. It has been observed in previous sermons that the design of this tabernacle And do not forget, it was not Moses who came up with this design, but it was something that he received from God. It was a replica of heavenly realities. It was shown to him on the mountain. But this design of the tabernacle and later temple was meant to remind the worshiper of what? Well, many things. It was meant to remind the worshiper of the original creation. Eden, in other words. It was also meant to remind the worshiper of God who is in heaven and our approach to Him from on earth. It was meant to remind the worshiper of Eden and especially what was lost. Adam and Eve were cast out because of their sin. The way to God and to the tree of life that was offered to them in the covenant of works was blocked by angels with flaming swords. And so there was a veil in the tabernacle that separated the holy place from the most holy place wherein God was enthroned. And on that veil were embroidered cherubim, a constant reminder that the way to God was not fully open. So that little tabernacle, its design and all of its features was meant to remind the worshiper of Eden and what was lost there. It was meant to remind the worshiper of God who is in heaven. So then the tabernacle was a visible reminder of the original creation of the heavens and earth as God made them of Eden and of the communion with God that was lost when man fell into sin. In this way, the tabernacle delivered bad news, didn't it? Can you see that? That the tabernacle had a way of delivering bad news? Because the way to God was not fully opened up. There was a barrier, there was a veil that hindered the worshiper from drawing near to God and and into His presence directly. They could not come boldly before the throne of grace under the old covenant. But only the high priest would go in once a year and not without the shedding of blood. So there was a sense in which this tabernacle reminded the worshiper under the old covenant of bad things. Eden, the loss of it. Through man's fall into sin and the barring of the way into the temple of God by those cherubim. But this tabernacle, uh, this little portable temple, also communicated good news. It communicated something wonderful. Its existence communicated this 
God, whom we have sinned against and rebelled against, this God is gracious. Though he would have done no wrong to leave the children of Adam in their sins and without hope, he has shown mercy. He has shown grace. He has determined to make a way for men to be cleansed so that they might approach him and commune with him. He has promised to send a Savior, a Messiah, to undo the works of the evil one. He has determined to establish his eternal kingdom, the kingdom that was offered to Adam but forfeited. God has determined to establish that kingdom in another way. And God has also established to, determined to establish his worldwide temple, the temple that was offered to Adam but forfeited. He will bring it into existence through another way. The kingdom and the temple will not come in through Adam nor through the covenant of works that God transacted with him for Adam broke that covenant. But it will come in, it will be brought in through the one who would descend from Adam and Eve and through a new covenant, that is to say through the covenant of grace. So as you picture the tabernacle that Israel built, it is imperative that you think of it as a visible promise. That is what it is. It is a visible promise. The promise was present from Adam's day to Moses' day. But all of a sudden that promise took on a tangible form. It became much more visible in Israel and under the Old Covenant in so many ways. Through all of their worship, through all of their priesthood, through those sacrifices, through the tabernacle and temple itself. These promises took on visible form. They were prototypes or pictures of much greater things yet to come. I've used the terms type and prototype often in our study of the book of Exodus. I think I used those terms often in our study of the book of Revelation too, and for good reason. These are very important terms. In fact, they are biblical terms. Paul speaks of types and he speaks of antitypes in his writings. A type or a prototype is a person, it is an event, or it is a thing through which God has worked in the history of redemption that anticipated the arrival of a greater person, event, or thing in the future. Do you understand? So God has been accomplishing His work of redemption from the days of Adam onward. And before Christ came, He determined to work in such a way where certain people, certain events, certain institutions, certain things would have a real use in their day. And yet at the same time they would be filled with, they would be imbued with a certain prophetic quality to them. Did God's people really worship at the tabernacle? Did they really approach God as they worshipped in the way that God had prescribed under the old covenant? We would say yes they did. Yes they did. It was of real use to them. But simultaneously the tabernacle was imbued with a prophetic quality to it. It pointed forward to a greater thing yet to come. Maybe I could put it this way. Was this the accomplishment of God's plan of redemption? To have a little tent on earth? In which one people on earth would be invited to approach Him? You know? The, the nation of Israel, the, the Hebrew people. Was this the, was this the end? Was this the goal? Was this the temple consummated? No. But it was a little picture of the temple consummated. I may put it in the terms of kingdom for you. Was, was this the end of God's goal? 
that this nation, the, the Hebrew people, the, the people of Israel under the Old Covenant, was this the end goal of God's plan of redemption, that they would be a kingdom unto the Lord, that they would be His people to worship and serve Him there, that He would dwell in the midst of them? No. As significant and wonderful as that was, this was not the end goal, but it was a picture of what was to come. Indeed, God's goal was not to just redeem people from amongst the Hebrews, but through them, people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. To bring them, not into a little sliver of land in Palestine, but into the new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. Do you see how types work then? How these things are real things and important things and good things that were used by God in their time, but only for a time. These People, places, institutions were also imbued with a prophetic, forward-looking quality so that they caused the faithful, even in those days, to look forward to the Messiah to come and to the work that He would accomplish. I want you to understand this. You've heard me speak of this before. I hope that you do not grow tired of it. In fact, it will not go on forever. We're in the book of Exodus. It must be said. It must be said. If we want to interpret the Old Testament correctly, this stuff must be taught else we'll fall into the trap of thinking that this was God's purpose. No, it is not. God's purpose was far greater than just the redemption of Israel or just the building of some little tent through which the people of God in those days were invited to come and to worship. Where am I now? In my manuscript, I hardly can tell. Let me give you other examples of types found in the Old Testament. Did you know that Adam was a type of Christ? That sounds strange to say, but it's what Paul says, and he's of course right. He said it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. How was Adam a type of Christ? Well, Adam was the federal head of the covenant of works. Christ is the federal head of the covenant of grace. Both men acted as representatives on behalf of others. Adam on behalf of humanity. Christ on behalf of all of God's elect. You see, Adam anticipated Christ in some important ways. Paul the Apostle notices this and tells us explicitly. The Exodus was a type of the redemption that Christ would accomplish. The destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah was a type of the final judgment. Even when Moses lifted up the serpent on the pole in the wilderness and all who looked upon him were healed, this was a type or picture of the salvation that God would provide from sin and eternal damnation through the lifting up of Christ on the cross. John says so explicitly. And if you wish to read the Old Testament well as a Christian, you must be mindful of typology. Indeed, many Christians are aware of the direct prophecies found in the Old Testament concerning the coming Messiah. I'm here thinking of those great passages like Psalm 110 and Isaiah 7, where, where prophecies are uttered concerning the one who is to come. There are many such passages as these, but we must not miss the fact that many Old Testament persons, places, events, and institutions are also imbued with a kind of prophetic quality. For example, when Abraham took Isaac up on that mountain, when he built that altar and laid the young man upon it and raised his knife, and when God stopped him and provided a ram as a substitute, that was not only good news for Isaac, that was good news for the whole world. That was a picture. That was a prophecy in the form of an event concerning the coming Messiah who would serve as a substitute for sinners. He was the only begotten Son of God, not just the only begotten Son of Abraham. It was, a, it was a picture, a prophecy in the form of an event concerning the Messiah. 
The Old Testament is jam-packed, full of people, places, institutions, and events that have a prophetic quality to them. These things were pictures of greater things yet to come. Brothers and sisters, it is very important for you to think of the tabernacle and later temple of Old Covenant Israel in this way. These structures were filled with symbolism. They pointed back to Eden. They pointed upward to the throne room of God in heaven. They also pointed forward to the coming of the Messiah and to the work that He would accomplish. The structure, the furnishings, the blood sacrifices, the washings, the priesthood, and even their garments all had reference to Christ. And this is a part of what Christ meant when He claimed to be the fulfillment of the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. The passage that is before us today is really very simple. In verse 1 of chapter 31 of the book of Exodus, we learn that a man named Bezalel of the tribe of Judah was to oversee the construction of the tabernacle and all of its furnishings, its utensils, its accoutrements. We should not take this to mean that Bezalel was to build the tabernacle alone. Instead, we are to see that he was to function as a foreman. He was given an assistant. Others were to contribute to the construction of this tabernacle. They were to give of their resources. And indeed, there were many skilled people, men and women, who would do work to build up this tabernacle. Uh, Bezalel was uniquely anointed by God to oversee this work. Notice also in verse 1 that it was the Lord who called Bezalel. The Lord set him apart. And in verse 6, we do learn that the Lord also appointed this Ohiliab. Ohiliab. So then it was the Lord who called Moses to serve as prophet and mediator of the Old Covenant. It was the Lord who called Aaron and his sons to serve as priests. And it was the Lord who called these two men to serve as craftsmen and foremen in the building of the tabernacle. Indeed, the Lord had called all of Israel to freely and cheerfully make contributions of fine materials so that the tabernacle of God would be constructed by all of the people. And I think one of the points of application that can be drawn from this is that the Lord calls all of His people to participate in the building up of His temple. All are to pour themselves into this work. And He furnishes them with a diversity of gifts by the power of His Holy Spirit for the accomplishment of this work. This was true in the days of Moses when that original tabernacle was built. This was true in the days of Solomon also. The people poured themselves into this work. Actually, here is something worth noting. When the temple was built in Solomon's day, so the tabernacle existed for a long time. It was a tent, a portable sanctuary. But in the days of King David, David wanted to build a permanent structure. The Lord said, no, not you, but your son. So Solomon, the son of David, the king, was the one who would build uh, that permanent temple there in Jerusalem. But it is interesting to note that even the Gentiles contributed to the building up of the temple in Solomon's day. You can read about that in 1 Kings chapter 5, verse 1 and following. I'm drawing your attention to that fact because I think there is something significant about Noting who participated in the building up of the tabernacle and later the temple. Who participated in the building up of the tabernacle? Well, two men were set apart to oversee the work, especially this one man, Bazalel, was anointed and given special ability to oversee this work. But all of Israel 
contributed. They poured themselves into it. And in the days of Solomon, something even greater happens. Gentiles are invited to contribute also. I'm saying it's a picture. It's a picture of of the greater thing yet to come. The day will come where God's temple will be built up, not out of wood and stone, but but of living stones. That is to say, people um, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb and, and, and where will these people come from? Not from the Hebrews only, but from all the nations of the earth. Gentiles will be grafted in. Gentiles will be brought in and will become living stones in this temple. I, it's a bit of a tangent, but I want you to see how this works. We must pay attention to who participated in the building up of these structures. They anticipate greater things yet to, be, yet to come. It is certainly true now under the new covenant. God's spiritual temple, the new covenant temple of God... Uh, is built up of people uh, with the diversity of gifts and and, and a diversity of backgrounds, a diversity of callings, and yet the Lord uses them all to to expand His temple to the furthest reaches of the earth. Though all were to make contributions of talent or materials, it was Bazalel of the tribe of Judah who was to oversee the work. And the text also says that he was filled with the Spirit to do this. The work itself was not very spiritual. It was work to be done with the hands and material was to be crafted. But it was spiritual work, wasn't it? For this man was contributing to the building up of God's tabernacle. The Lord anointed this man with his spirit. That is what verse 3 says, And I have filled him with the spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood to work in every craft. There is application here to be made for those who are employed in what we might call secular vocation. It's a great tragedy when such value is ascribed to those who have a sacred calling, who are engaged in a sacred vocation, you know, ministers of the gospel. But those who are engaged in a secular vocation, they are, their vocation is demeaned. If, if you are doing that to others, or if you are doing that concerning yourself, you need to stop it, by the way. I think there is valid application to be made here, that the, that the Lord calls us all to do different things, and He can use us powerfully in the accomplishment of His redemptive purposes, no matter what it is that the Lord has called us to do. But I do not think it is the main point of this text. Notice here that the filling with the Holy Spirit that Bezalel received was of a particular kind. The Lord had filled him with the Spirit to give him the ability and intelligence, knowledge, and craftsmanship for the purpose of devising artistic designs to work in gold, silver, and bronze, etc. I have no reason to doubt that this Bezalel was a believer in the Messiah, a believer in the promises concerning him, and therefore regenerated by the Holy Spirit to the salvation of his soul. I have no reason to doubt that. In fact, I think it is right for us to assume that he was given this task that he was given to oversee the building up of the tabernacle. But the thing I am drawing your attention to here is that this particular filling of the Spirit was not unto salvation, but for the purpose of furnishing this man with the gifts he would need to fulfill his calling. Bezalel was called to build and furnish the tabernacle, and so the Lord furnished him with the gifts required. He gave him all that he needed to do this work. And I think it is helpful to remember this, that when the scriptures speak of filling or anointing with the Holy Spirit, this does not always refer 
to the forgiveness of sins or the salvation of the soul. Sometimes the scriptures speak of filling or anointing of the Spirit for the purpose of furnishing a per- person with what they need to fulfill a particular office or accomplish a particular task. This will become very important when we hear about King Saul. Remember that character, King Saul, the first king of Israel, chosen by the people but not by the Lord. They chose him because he looked mighty like all of the kings that the other nations had, but he was not a man after God's own heart. Nevertheless, King Saul was anointed with the Holy Spirit, but only in this sense. He was anointed to serve as Israel's king. And we are also told that the Spirit departed from Saul. Some have taken that to mean that you can lose your salvation. See, You can be anointed with the Spirit unto salvation and then lose that anointing, but that is not at all what the text is saying. The Spirit is said to have departed from Saul in 1 Samuel 6.23, and we are to see that this does not mean he lost his salvation. There's no indication he ever had that, but instead he lost the Lord's anointing and blessing to serve as Israel's king. This man, this man who was anointed, Bezalel, was anointed to accomplish the work that God had given him to do in the building up of the tabernacle. I took the time in the introduction of this sermon to talk about the typology of the tabernacle and the temple in part so that I might make a connection between Bezalel, the son of Uri, and Jesus Christ, the son of David. I do not think it's a stretch to make a connection between these two characters and to see Bezalel as a type of the Christ who is to come. One, Notice that both Bezalel and Jesus were of the tribe of Judah. I suppose it is also important to point out that King David, who desired to build a permanent temple for the Lord, and his son, King Solomon, who would in fact build the permanent temple for the Lord, were also of the tribe of Judah. So the tribe of Judah produced temple builders, didn't it? The tribe of Judah produced temple builders. Two, Bezalel was anointed with the Holy Spirit for the accomplishment of this task. He was furnished with all that he would need, ability and intelligence, knowledge and craftsmanship, for the accomplishment of his work. And indeed, Jesus Christ was God's anointed one. That is what Christ or Messiah means. He was the anointed one. He was anointed to do many things. He was anointed to function as God's great king. He was anointed to function as God's great prophet. But also he was anointed to function as God's great priest. And I think under that category we might see that he was even called to build up this temple of which he served as priest and mediator. And three, both Bezalel, the son of Uri, and Jesus Christ, the son of David, were called and equipped to do the same work. Namely, to build God's tabernacle or temple. Bezalel's work was earthly, temporary, prototypical, Christ's work was much, much greater. It was heavenly, eternal, it was ultimate. You see, while it is important for you to know the facts about the construction of the tabernacle under the Old Covenant, that it was built by Bezalel of the tribe of Judah, one set apart by God for the work and anointed by the Holy Spirit, it's even more important for you to see Christ and His work prefigured there. Jesus Christ of the tribe of Judah was set apart by God and anointed with the Holy Spirit beyond measure to skillfully build the temple of God. 
A temple not made with earthly materials, but one that will fill heaven and earth, be populated by sinners, made holy by His shed blood, and filled with the glory of God forever and ever. You know, there is a passage that I've alluded to which makes all of this very clear and explicit. Christ's work was to build God's house or God's temple. It's found in 1 Chronicles 17. This is that passage wherein King David expresses his desire to build a permanent and glorious temple for God. You remember that passage? David is sitting here pondering things, and he says, This isn't right. I'm living in this, this marvelous house, this palace, you know, constructed of wood and stone and of precious things. But God dwells in a tent. He says, let's, let's do something about this. Now that the kingdom has been established, now that our place of worship is secure, I want to build a house for God, one that is appropriately glorious for Him. And... As you know, in that passage, the Lord uh, speaks to the prophet and says, Nathan, go to David and tell him something. It's not really good news. He wants to build this house, but he's not the man for the job. He's not the man for the job. In fact, his son will build the temple, not him. His son is going to do it. He's a man of war. I used him to establish the kingdom, but he's not going to be my temple builder. David's son is going to build the temple. And as you read this passage, it is clear that it has an immediate fulfillment in King Solomon. It does. It has an immediate fulfillment in King Solomon, David's immediate son. He would do the work of temple building after David's death. But it is also apparent that what is promised... To David concerning his son building a temple for God goes far beyond Solomon and finds its ultimate fulfillment in the Christ, the true son of David. I want you to listen carefully to what the Lord said to David regarding his kingdom and regarding the building of God's temple. It's fascinating. Here is what the Lord says to David through Nathan the prophet. When your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, I will rise up your offspring after you. Does that language sound familiar to you? The language of offspring, it should. It should remind us of Adam and Eve and Abraham and now David. I will rise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. So there is kingdom language. Do you hear it? I will establish his kingdom. And, I continue to read now, he shall build a house for me. There's temple language. And I will establish His throne forever. Back to kingdom language again. Did you hear it? The, 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 the kingdom or the throne of this son of David will be established forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. I will not take my steadfast love from him as I took it from him who was before you. That is a reference to Saul. But I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever. And his throne shall be established forever. Do you hear the, the repetition? In accordance with all these words, in accordance with his vision, Nathan spoke to David. Now as we consider these promises in light of the rest of the scripture, it becomes clear that they found their partial fulfillment in the work that King Solomon would do to establish David's kingdom and to build God's temple or house. It would find 
partial fulfillment in him. But it is also clear that these promises find their ultimate fulfillment, not in Solomon, but in who? In Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, the son of David, the son of God. In fact, Hebrews 1.5 tells us this explicitly. In Hebrews 1.5, this passage here from 1 Chronicles 17 is cited and it is applied to Jesus. This passage here in 1 Chronicles 17 is cited in Hebrews 1.5 and it is applied to Jesus. Hebrews 1.5 says, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Did you hear that? That's a citation from 1 Chronicles 17. And this is referring to Christ. The writer to the Hebrews, Paul, I believe, I've been convinced of that, is saying, listen, the Lord never spoke this to angels. He spoke this to Jesus, the Messiah. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. This is a citation from 1 Chronicles 17. And the writer of the Hebrews wants us to see that this is not about Solomon. This is not about angels. This is about Jesus, the Messiah. Jesus Christ is the son of David, of whom this passage speaks. Jesus Christ is the son of David, who would establish his kingdom forever and ever. Jesus Christ is the son of David, who would build a house for the Lord, and who would establish this house and this throne forever. It was to Jesus Christ, whom the Lord ultimately spoke, saying, I will be to him the Father and he shall be to me a son. I will not take my steadfast love from him as I took it from him who was before you, but I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. That was a message to David's son, Jesus the Christ. I trust that you have thought of Jesus as the great king in God's kingdom. I know that you have thought of him as that. But I wonder, have you thought of him as the great builder of God's temple or house. Have you thought of him in those terms? I think if you kept your eye open for this theme in the New Testament, you would see it everywhere. Jesus Christ is not only the great king in God's kingdom, he is also the great builder of God's temple or house. Perhaps the best example of that is 1 Peter 2. It was read earlier. It is there that Peter speaks to Christians, saying, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So there it is. Matthew 16, 18 also comes to mind. You know that the church is God's temple now. That is taught in the New Testament. And Christ Himself said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Do you hear the language of building there? The church is the temple of the living God. And Christ has said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Nothing will hinder it. Nothing will hinder this, this work. God's temple is being built up not stone by stone upon... God's temple is being built up now, stone by stone, upon the foundation of Christ, the apostles and prophets. And what are these stones except people, Jews and Gentiles together, who have Jesus as Lord? These are the stones of the spiritual house that Christ is building. And when will this spiritual temple, this building project, when will it be completed? When will it come to its consummate form? It will be completed when all of God's elect are gathered in, when Christ returns to judge those 
in their sin and to bring his people safely into the new heavens and new earth, the eschatological, full and final, everlasting temple of God in which righteousness dwells. Indeed, Revelation 21, 27 speaks of this temple when it says, Nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So what are the implications of this for us today? In other words, how does viewing Christ as God's temple builder help us to understand who He is, what He has done, and who we are in Him? One, I think seeing Christ as temple builder helps us to realize that that He did far more than earn your personal salvation in mine. I want you to understand this. When Christ died and rose again, He did far more than earn your personal salvation in mine. No, instead what Christ did is He earned a new creation. He secured the place that was offered to Adam but forfeited. The new heavens and earth are His, for He has earned them through His obedience. And they are our inheritance through our union with Him. Christ said, I go prepare a place for you. I go prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am you may also be. Christ did more than pay for your individual sins. He did that. Thanks be to God. But He also earned a place. He also is building and has built God's house so that we might be with Him where He is for all eternity. Two, seeing Christ as temple builder helps us to realize that His mission was not just to to cleanse of sin so that we might go to heaven and stand afar off from God. No, He redeemed us from sin and darkness so as to draw us near to God. He came to reconcile us to the Father so that we might draw near to Him and enjoy communion with Him as Adam and Eve did in the garden before sin entered into the world. I told you that I was going to make a stink of this word communion. I want you to remember it. So Christian, I ask you, Are you living now as one who has been forgiven? Or are you living now as one who has been forgiven and reconciled to God the Father? Do you see the difference? Do you see the difference? These are related things, of course. To be forgiven is a wonderful gift. Indeed, to be forgiven alone would be an awesome and glorious gift from God. But according to the truth of the gospel, we have been forgiven so that we might be reconciled. We have been cleansed so that we might come near to God to enjoy communion with Him. I could also put this in terms of justification and adoption. Those who have faith in Christ are justified before God. This means they are declared not guilty in a legal way. Indeed, to be justified before God is an essential thing. It is a very blessed thing. But the justification we receive makes our adoption possible. In, the, in a certain respect, adoption is an even more glorious thing. What I am saying to you, Christian, is that you have not only been declared not guilty, you have been adopted by God as a beloved child. Before adoption could happen, there must be justification. So justification is in some ways more important. It is more foundational. But the justification is in order to make adoption possible. Adoption is a more glorious thing. It is a familial thing. It is a warm thing. It has to do with communion and right relationship with God. Adoption is what makes God's warm embrace a reality to us, you see. 
And so you have not just been justified, you've been adopted, nor, nor have you just been forgiven, you have been reconciled. And I think, as we think, I think if we were to think of um, Jesus Christ as, as God's great temple builder, it helps us to understand this. For temples are places wherein man is invited to draw near to God, to commune with Him, to adore, to worship and serve Him. And so I ask you, are you... Drawing near to God, brothers and sisters. Are you drawing near to Him in prayer? Are you drawing near to Him in worship from the heart? Are you offering yourself up to Him as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship? Romans 12.1 Christ lived, died, and rose again, not only to cleanse you from your sins, but to cleanse you so that you might enter into the presence of God in His holy temple, now and for all eternity. Three, Seeing Christ as temple builder does also help us to understand the nature and mission of the church. If the church is God's temple, made up of living stones, that is to say of human souls redeemed by Christ Jesus, and if these living stones are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Jesus Christ himself as the cornerstone, then it is clear that the church of Jesus Christ is made up of only those who have Jesus as Lord who believe the words of Christ, his apostles and prophets, who have been cleansed by his shed blood, as signified by the waters of baptism. In other words, it is those who have made a credible profession of faith through the waters of baptism who are to be received as members of Christ's church and recognized as living stones in his temple. God knows who are his. We cannot see the hearts of men. And so we are to receive into the church all who make a credible profession, who have been water baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And any church that willingly receives into its membership those who do not believe or those who make a mockery of their profession of faith by wicked and unrepentant living defile God's temple. They defile God's temple. It is those who have Jesus as Lord who are living stones in God's spiritual temple. It is those who have been cleansed by His blood and washed with water who make up this spiritual house. And what does this say about the mission or purpose of the church? If the church is the temple, then the church has as its purpose worship, prayer, holy living, and faithful witness to the world around. As the Apostle Peter says, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be. Do you see the language here? This is happening so that you might be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. A bit later in that passage, he says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. So seeing Jesus Christ as God's great temple builder helps us to understand the nature and also the mission of the church. What are we to do? Well, we are to draw near to God, to worship and to serve Him. We are to obey Him. We are to live holy lives before Him as His, as His priests. And we are to declare the excellencies of our God even to the non-believing world. He has called us out of darkness and into His marvelous light. For this purpose, Lord, help us in these things. Let's bow now for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, do help us to better know and appreciate all that you have done for us through Christ Jesus our Lord. We thank you that you sent a Savior, the seed of the woman, 
to rescue us from sin and from darkness and from death. We thank you that the Word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us in order to accomplish our salvation. We thank you that the Word, Jesus Christ the Lord, is now building His temple and will bring it to completion at the end of time. We long for the new heavens and new earth, O Lord. Help us to be faithful till then, as individuals and as congregations. May we bring glory to your name. Be with us, O God. Strengthen us towards this end. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.